The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box, and these are your headlines. The Federal Reserve hikes interest rates by 75 basis points for the third consecutive meeting, with the policy rate now at its highest since early 2008. FOMC members issue a hawkish outlook, and Chair Jerome Powell warns of more moves to come. I wish there were a painless way to do that. There isn't. So what we need to do is get rates up to, to the point where we're play, putting meaningful downward pressure on inflation. And that's what, we're, that's what we're doing. U.S. markets closed a volatile session sharply lower while the two-year Treasury yield hit 4% for the first time since 2007. Now on the policy front, a great surprise for you. No, I'm only joking. The Bank of Japan, of course, bucking the trend, holding rates at record low levels. This despite further hawkishness forecast from a host of global central banks today. We will bring you interviews with the SMB chairman, uh, Thomas Jordan, uh, and the Norge Bank governor, first on CNBC. And President Biden leads international condemnation of Russia at the UN General Assembly. After Vladimir Putin warns he could deploy Moscow's nuclear arsenal and issues the first military mobilization since the Second World War. Putin claims he had to act because Russia was threatened. But no one threatened Russia. And no one other than Russia sought conflict. Good morning. Very good morning. Lovely to see you. I'm just going to yes. just... Yeah, go on. Bit of black humour here. Yes, okay. okay. Because yes. I'm worried. Make sure we're still here and we haven't been blasted away in a, into right. a nuclear winter. That is dark humour. <laughs> well, I know. For we're still here. On a Thursday morning. Well, you've got to have a bit but, of humour, yeah. haven't you? I yeah. mean, it's so much. And I spent 24 hours, as I'm sure you did on the last day of your vacation, looking at these extraordinary global events and, and how, for the first time since... Well, I think since the late 70s, early 80s, you and I have to dust off all those concerns we had at the height of the Cold War about being blasted away uh, in a nuclear war. Yes, I mean, there is a, a little bit of sabre rattling going on, isn't there? And you were cheering me up this morning by telling me just how far out the blast zone would extend if we were hit with nuclear weapons over a certain part of Canary This isn't the Daily Mail. This, yeah. isn't a pop- this is the London Times yes. has done a graphic of if a ex-kiloton weapon were to be dropped onto London's Docklands, where exactly we are in uh, just west of St Paul's Cathedral, where we would be in the blast. And it was quite extraordinary, the, the, the comment you're getting from the London press now. Yes, yeah. But what can you do? I mean, all you can do really is uh, try and park that thought and try and lighten up the day. Um, well, uh, sing a, well, maybe one of those old uh, comedy songs, we'll all go together when we go. All suffused oh, in an incandescent glow. Oh, but anyway, let's let's move off. This is the, exactly um, what the producers thought we'd be doing exactly. at the top of the show. Let's, uh, when let's, when they put us against the Fed wall. Let's talk about the Federal Reserve. Um, obviously, the big story for us this morning here. And well, we so, can't see it. Was so it many five angles. basis points? You want to move aside so for the So many views? angles. 75. So many angles for us to explore here. 75 and not 100, I guess, is it's worth just pointing out at this point. But let's let's just uh, walk you through I the like read the here. The, uh, the Fed 
uh, hiking interest rates then by 75 basis points, putting the key benchmark rate at 3 to 3.25%. That is the highest since early 2008. It is the uh, third three quarters of a percentage point move in a row uh, and may not be the last. The Fed's median forecast places the funds rate at 4.6% in 2023 and at 4.4% by the end of the year. Uh, Steve and I have got a couple of charts to walk you through here. So let me just wander over this side and give the director an opportunity Is that Russian military to, give us the, uh, to, to give us the big picture. Um, it's either that or it's the Star Wars game so from the 1980s. So it's almost like the ones we had at the start of the war. This is the Ukrainian army <laughs> and this is the Russian army. But no, it's yes. not, is it? It's a dot plot. No, no, this, this is the, uh, the so-called dot plot. So if you're, if you're not familiar with the terminology, the dot plot represents the views or the projections of where interest rates are going to be by the Federal Reserve members. So as you look at each of these dots, they represent a call from one of the Fed members as to where they think interest rates are going to be over this time frame. And as you can see, they ultimately expect interest rates um, will begin to, this is the short end, will begin to fall as we move out to 2025. But in the interim, we still have interest rates, the key policy rate, up over 4%, somewhere between 4 and 5%, clustering here in 2023, almost up to 5%. And as you look at this, it looks rather benign, doesn't it? It's basically a, a bunch of dots on a chart that indicates projections from Fed members. But fortunately, in real terms, for real people, um, they've done a little bit of number crunching in-house here. And I just wanted to mention this before we move on to, to Steve, and he talks a bit about the inflation aspect of this story. According to Wallet Hub, the increases in interest rates that we've seen in the United States so far have increased the cost of servicing your credit card debt by $15.5 billion. Now that's as a result of the rate hikes so far this year. So that's what it's costing people in real terms. The headline interest rate now back at 18.1%. That is the highest since January of 1996. And the 75 basis point move we just had, according to Wallet Hub, adds an additional $5.3 billion to credit card costs, servicing well, of that debt. Well. So there are real impacts here, despite people like Jeffrey Gunlack saying, well, people have got a lot of savings, um, the corporate world is doing really exactly. well, we can absorb this without necessarily getting a recession. In real terms, it is beginning to cost people a lot more money. And as you know, the mortgage rate now, 6%. Was Up it? at 6%. Yeah. We haven't been there for a very long time. There's a great chart from the St. Louis Fed. If you want to find the 30-year mortgage rate, there's a lot of charts around. But have a look at the St. Louis Fed website as well. Very interesting looking at how that's gone from a, a high two-handle through three to 6% now as well. Um, can I back us up a little bit? I don't know if we're, yeah, are we allowed on. to cross? Oh, God, you're not yeah. supposed to cross in rugby union, but we'll cross yeah, here. Sure. Because I think that the key point, and I'll just do a quick pivot. Yep camera facing is this this little bit here because do you remember ladies and this is why i think the markets are continuing to be a little bit in a funk about this as well it's because this was supposed to be there yeah it was supposed to be there because 
This is where we are now, pretty much. You kind of expected that, a little bit more hawkish than you expected. But this bit was supposed to be going down a bit because we were supposed to have the spring pivot in early 2023. And it's that going to there rather than there, which I think has upset the markets. But I'm getting ahead of myself as well. So I yes. shall try and gracefully shall, make shall my I way over inflation? to the inflation. Shall, shall I do you the inflation like. numbers over I here. think this is exactly how Michael, the producer today, envisaged this going today. Yes, By the way, yes. thank you to the graphics yes, team. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you to yeah. the graphics team for Go doing on. this brilliant chart as well, because right. it is brilliant as well. So this is the point. It's, it's just a little right. bit longer than the markets wanted as well, than expected, because they've been yes. getting used to the idea now that there is no pivot, and hence that bit over there. Yeah. But the fact is now, the language from the Fed is about restrictive territory rather than neutral, and that's what the market doesn't like. Uh, and I'll just quote from the policy statement. The committee is committed beautifully said by the J-PAL, the committee is committed to getting a meaningful, restrictive stance on policy and staying there until we feel confident that inflation is coming down. So that is why this year, 2023, is the key on the dot plot for the economy, for rates and for inflation as well. So 2.8%, dramatically lower than the figure this year. But the Fed is saying, not only are we going to get there, in terms of the interest rates. We're going to stay there. We're going to be restrictive until we see evidence of inflation coming down. And as you can see, relatively benign inflation actually called for 2023, 2024 and 2025. So the series of big rate hikes are expected to slow down the economy. Unemployment is estimated to rise to 4.4% by next year from its current 37 percent figure. GDP growth is forecast to slump to 0.2% this year and inflation is also seen coming down. So we've taken a look at the inflation level as well but I did see a lot of sarcasm out there as well so let me get this right was one commentator on on the Twitter sphere which is the 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 town hall the town square of free speech. Someone once said that who was that who said that? Hmm. I don't know. I think he was trying to buy the company at the time. Anyway, someone on Twitter sphere said, so let me get this right. The Fed is trying to have a recession in order to avoid a recession. And I thought it was funny, but not quite the point, is it? Because, of course, it's about inflation. You have to make it 3D. But I kind of understood what the commentator was saying. So talk about what people are saying. Fed chair Jerome Powell says there is no easy way to bring inflation under control. If we want to set ourselves up, really, really light the way to another period of a very strong labor market, we have got to get inflation behind us. I wish there were a, a painless way to do that. There isn't. So what we need to do is get rates up to, to the point where we're play, putting meaningful downward pressure on inflation. And that's what we're, that's what we're doing. And um, we, we don't, certainly don't, don't hope, we, we, we certainly haven't given up the idea that we can have a relatively modest increase in, in unemployment. Nonetheless, we need to complete this task. Well, as if by magic, the wall behind yeah. us has changed. So we're going to do like a Flanagan and Allen. We're just going to right. move across, I think, like well, this. Kind of. that, now, 20% of the audience has You're no joking. idea what The average age about. of a scoreboard viewer is 66. Yeah, that's why I said 20% of the audience. <laughs> <laughs> right, you go there, I'll go right. here. So here's the point. The markets didn't like it in the end. The markets kind of knew that what they were going to get on the interest rate front. I'd say Jeff was uh, just saying potentially there was a very outside chance of 100 basis points. The Swedes went a bit big, didn't they, with their 100 basis points early week. But mm. 75 is, is du jour at the moment, of the moment. So we did see rather large declines. And what is very interesting is look at that. Waffa 
nothing differences between the Nasdaq, the growth stocks, and indeed the Dow. In fact, every sector was down under pressure as well. The most negative sector was consumer discretionary, but in the session previously, it had been real estate as well. Uh, so it is very broad encompassing. Shall I tell you the levels we've come off though? Maybe interesting for the viewers uh, from our record highs. The Dow is very close to bear market territory again. It's down 18.3%. The S&P is in bear market territory, down 21.4%. You'll notice on yesterday's move, just going into bear market. And the NASDAQ is back with a three handle, down over 30%. We are roughly, well, very close to the levels we got to at the June uh, trough of the market. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and, the, and the reaction is, is um, interesting because, as you point out, it wasn't just the growth sector just the that got hit. hit. It, everybody took a, a little bit of pain here. But 1.7% is sort of intraday trading range, isn't it, to yeah. a certain extent? This is not a mega sell-off on a surprise hit. This was, okay, yep, you're going to carry on tightening the thumb screws until we get the message. But the point is, this is front loaded. Still on that dot plot that we were looking at earlier, that's out to 2023, and then the numbers start to come down. So the market is still trying to convince itself well, that there is the an opportunity for a pivot. Absolutely. What, what can I do to say, this is why I'm buying the market? Is yeah. it rates coming down anytime soon? Well, no, because the market is a forward-looking indicator. There's no doubt about it. They are trying to look beyond the rate hikes. But the problem is when they look over the horizon of those rate hikes towards the end of 2023, they're being told there is going to be a mild recession. That was the other part uh, of the statement as well, uh, that new median growth in 2022 is more negative than compared with June. Negative 0.2 rather than positive 1.7. Now, it's also lower for 2023, although not calling recessionary levels as well. But the point here is they're looking over the horizon of the rate hikes, looking over the horizon of the inflation saying, well, what have we got? Well, we may have four or five quarters of earnings declines, and therein lies the issue. If I can't uh, have earnings support, then why am I saying that I get, will get valuation support? Because a PE is about price and earnings. And it's all about expectations, which is why it's good to have a look at the treasuries. Because if, if, the, um, if the equity markets tell us one thing, it's about how people are trying to forward discount expected changes in cash flow and earnings. Mm. The treasuries curve, though, is telling you how the market is trying to understand what the Federal Reserve is actually doing and how interest rates are going to adjust accordingly. And this is the point, isn't it? You talking about the market believing now that there will be a mild recession. The shape of that curve is telling you that the market thinks that there is some kind of recession coming or a very serious slowdown. And that the fact that the curve is now falling here indicates the uh, reluctance at this stage to, to get engaged. Although the longer end of the curve, mm. yes, it's picking up to levels we haven't seen for mm. a very long time, but is remaining remarkably consistent compared to the real action we're seeing yeah. on the two to five. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, what about the dollar? Well, let's have a look at the dollar because, of course, I mentioned, I think somewhere in the headlines, it was a long while ago now, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, the, 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 the yen, look at this. The Japanese do not have an inflationary problem According to the BOJ, according, and to be fair, they don't have the same kind of inflation, of course, we're seeing in Europe because of our energy needs, although they import most of their energy as well, but maybe they're getting the discounted rate uh, in Japan as well. Maybe, dare I say, even though they're in the G7, maybe they'll get some exception to the Russian energy ban, <coughs> Sakhalin, um, which we know is the case. Um, so, but the, the thing is, this is a very dangerous game 
for Japan. Yes, of course, uh, there is a dollar translation which may well benefit the fact that they are a surplus nation in terms of their exports, but there are real concerns about their bills for products coming into the market. And, that's, and they just said, look, it's a free-for-all on the yen at the moment. It yeah. does seem to be a free pass for traders who are looking at the dollar and saying, well, interest rates going up there, I can buy the, I can buy the dollar uh, and I can sell the yen as well. Just one other nugget that I thought was oh, fascinating. Sorry, 0.98. I should mention that. That is getting near the lows again. And the sterling, 112. Well, what can you say about the spending plans of the British government? Well, absolutely. But <laughs> I was going to talk about the spending plans of wealthy Americans, or right. maybe not so wealthy Americans. It remains to be seen. Did you see the GM story? I know you're always interested in a car story. I didn't. About the, uh, let me have a look at this, about the electric Hummer, the SUV Hummer. Right. So basically, GM has now closed its reservations book for the Hummer, 90,000 reservations, that's 90,000 orders for a car that is going to cost you somewhere between 90,000 to 100,000 US dollars. Huge demand still. And and therein lies the the issue for the Federal Reserve, doesn't it? Because even as it, it is tightening monetary conditions, it is making it harder for people to get Uh, uh, money, to borrow money at decent interest rates that they feel comfortable with, there are still people out there who think nothing of slapping down a reservation for a 100,000 Hummer. There is something extraordinary about an electric Hummer. It's just saying those words. It's like saying an electric F-150 or an electric, I don't know, Range Rover, Land Rover Defender. They're very, very large vehicles Yes. We're very, very heavy vehicles, which yes. is quite a strain on a, an electric battery, one yes. would assume. It's, it's not, I would wonder, and I don't know the answer, but I wonder how many miles you'll get uh, on a charge for well, an electric Hummer. I mean, just the Hummer anyway, outside of a military use, uh, uh, was there any reason for the Hummer to exist in the first place? A dear place? friend of ours, a oh. diminutive lady who used to be a, a brilliant reporter on this channel for many, many decades. Yes. Well, <laughs> um, she has one in the Middle East, or had one. Oh. Yeah. Oh, do you remember it now? Incredible. Well, maybe at uh, $10 a gallon or whatever it was well, in the Middle exactly, East to fill it. Exactly. You can afford it. Um, for more on the Fed's bumper move uh, and what to expect in months to come, you can go to cnbc.com. Obviously, we've got a full write-up of the story there. And still to come on the programme, our Italian election roadshow heads on to Ancona to look at the rise of the Italian right. Well, it's not what the producers expected, but I've been told it's a very, very good podcast today. Uh, Yes, so for more on the Fed's third straight rate hike of 75 basis points, uh, check out the beautifully crafted by Mike and Katie and the team, the Squawkbox podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. You've missed some great um, travelling from uh, Jumana. She's been in Gert's van, nice. you know, our satellite trunk. Yep. And she's been down to Sicily. Lovely. Lovely. She, uh, was it a gas plant, though? Something like that, yeah. Right, okay. yeah. She's been wearing all kinds of hard hats. It's quite yeah. extraordinary. She's yeah. been um, up to Milan with, with some extraordinary artwork behind her, that's all I can say. 
for the financial story. She's now went to Emma Machigayes, um smelting plant. It was quite extraordinary. That was in um, Mantua, which is uh, called the Sleeping Beauty, overlooked by tourists. And now, sounds like she's in Ancona. Did she get any uh, gelato? I what, mean, from a steel factory? I don't know, just anywhere on this trip. It sounds like an awful lot of hard She did work. have a very interesting okay. restaurant experience, which I saw on Twitter. I can oh, come to that okay. later. So today, our Italian election roadshow is in Encona, where Germana is taking a look at the rise of the Italian right. Now, Italy heads to the polls in three days with far-right brothers of Italy leader Giorgia Maloney tipped to become the country's first female minister uh, as uh, the leader of a right-wing coalition. It's a huge change for a party which took only 4% of the vote in the 2018 election. So I think I'm reading everything she's going to be saying, but I'll carry on anyway. Uh, some pollsters have predicted as many as one in four votes could go to Fratelli d'Italia on Sunday. Well, Jumana joins us. And Jumana, before you get to the serious business of politics, so let me get this right. You went into a restaurant, it was empty, this is last night, uh, and you said, um, can I have yes. a table? And they said, uh, have you got a booking? Yes. And you said, no. And they said, well, you can't have a table without a booking. So you went to the Italian waiter and said, can I have a booking? And they said, yes. And then you said, right, I'll have a table then. We That's said, exactly how it went, yeah? That's exactly how it went. And then I said, grazie. grazie I love Italy. I love Italy. It is absolutely bonkers though, isn't it? <laughs> Very efficient, very right, efficient. Right, let's get to the serious Indeed. business. Um, you know, uh, that was one of my most popular tweets ever, so maybe I need to post more stuff like that on Twitter. Okay, so we are here actually in Ancona, which is the capital of the Marche region. And the reason we came here, Steve and Jeff, is because it is such an important region for Fratelli d'Italia. In 2020, they famously flipped it from 25 years of PD governing to Fratelli d'Italia and is one of two regions actually in the entire country that they have been governing uh, over the last couple of years. So has perceived from the outside community as sort of a, a template of what could be expected at a national level. Now, as you were saying in the readout to me, uh, this is a party that hasn't existed for a very long time. Uh, we can go back into its history and historical roots perhaps another time, but they actually were technically founded in 2012. And in 2018, received less than 5% of the popular vote. Today, we're looking at something like 25 percentage points. And certainly over the last couple of weeks since the blackout period, there's been even more momentum in their favor. Some people are saying they could even end up with as high as 30 percentage points. Now, these populist parties are not a stranger, a strange phenomenon in Italy. We've seen it with the likes of Five Star Movement, their rise and you could say almost fall heading into these elections with Lega as well, very popular at the last elections. Also, their popularity is falling actually uh, due to the rise of Meloni herself. Uh, but one of the issues that investors have with the party, in addition to uh, some of the platform positions that they're putting forward, is their simple lack of governing experience. They've, as I mentioned at the beginning, they've literally only ever governed two regions in all of the country. So I had the chance to meet with one of the Fratelli d'Italia founders yesterday. He's a longtime standing member of the party and its predecessor party as well. And one of the questions I put to him was whether this party is actually ready to govern at a national level. We are particularly strong in La Marche. Ten years ago, we had 2% of the vote, and yet two years ago in 2020, after just eight years, we secured 18 and then 66% of the vote, far ahead of the party's national average, which hovered around 10 or 11%. La Marche became a model for the party, and as regional secretary for eight years, I was responsible as we went into each territory seeking out all local authorities, council members and mayors, the foundations of the party, which was a strategy that paid off.
This phenomenon spreads to the rest of Italy. At this moment, we're likely to be the largest party in the country, which can only be confirmed by the vote on Sunday, not any polls. Why do I think Fratelli d'Italia will make it? Because our leadership is one of substance. Giorgio Maloney is prepared both culturally and politically. Hardly a surprise there, but he does think that they are ready to govern at a national level because, in his, in his words, uh, they have been so successful governing regionally uh, with all the changes that they have instilled. But, uh, you know, just taking a step back, Fratelli d'Italia on a lot of social issues leans very right. They have a very hard stance on immigration, on women's rights, on LGBTQ rights as well. But economically, their platform is actually the platform of the center-right coalition. It is not a Fratelli d'Italia platform. And, and I think that is a key factor here as well, because it's going to be somewhat diluted by uh, other uh, platform agendas driven by the other parties too. And here it's similar template to what we see in, in other um, countries. They're running on a platform of excess spending, dealing with the energy crisis, pot potential implementation of a flat tax, but also regressive tax cuts as well. Um, but one of the other issues that comes up in the context of these discussions is how Fratelli d'Italia could poten uh, potentially approach their relationship to Europe. Now, in the past, the leader, Georgia Maloney, has sounded quite Eurosceptic. She's toned that down in the last couple of months and has talked about not wanting to increase debt levels, potential appointment of an ECB board member, Mr. Panetta, as finance minister, yet to be confirmed, but there are reports that she's looking to go in that direction. And then finally, there's this question of how Fratelli d'Italia would approach Europe uh, with respect to those European recovery funds. Remember, these were instituted around the time of the pandemic. Italy are set to be the biggest recipient, almost as much as 200 billion euros over the course of the next five years. They have talked about wanting to try to rejig some of the arrangements uh, with the disbursements and with the milestones. So I also had an opportunity to sit down with another lawmaker from Fratelli d'Italia. This one is a European lawmaker, Raffaele Fito. And I asked him specifically, what about these recovery funds do they actually want to change? The recovery funds and the plan Italy has set up are very important for the future of our country. The only issue Giorgia Maloney has raised is that the plan was approved before the war in Ukraine to address the economic issues brought by the pandemic. After the war has broken out, data shows that the tool must be adapted to new issues. We are not putting the recovery funds into question. We are asking to answer to new issues arisen after the funds have been negotiated. For instance, regarding the rising cost of raw materials, the recovery funds allocate 120 billion euros aimed at public infrastructure. With the surge in raw material costs, there's a risk that these investments will not be impactful. So, we want to adapt the recovery plan to new scenarios arising after the war broke out, to be able to adapt to the spike in energy costs. Would you be looking to renegotiate the terms of the recovery funds at the EU level? We have made a proposition that is allowed in EU laws, according to Article 21. We want to modify the package in tandem with the EU to make sure to best spend these resources in this new scenario. The Portuguese government, led by the Socialist Party, has already mentioned they will adapt requirements to access the funds. In Belgium, as well, they are debating on whether the funds' requirements should be amended and adapted. Many Italian entrepreneurs are asking to adjust the criteria to access the fund, to the new challenges they are facing. We do not want to politicise the package. We want to use the EU rules to make sure we're using those funds in the best possible way.
So that is the Fratelli d'Italia lawmaker saying that they understand the importance of these EU recovery funds. Clearly, it is very uh, significant for it, the Italian economy going forward, especially if you think of investment in things like public infrastructure, but that they would look to modify the requirements for them to receive some of these funds in light of the recent crisis, energy crisis, rising uh, costs, supply chain issues, etc., etc. Now, I would just say that, you know, I was here five years ago and I also back then spoke to Luigi Di Maio, the then leader of Five Star Movement, and I remember him telling me the same thing, that they wanted to go to the EU with their list of demands and things that they wanted to, concessions that they wanted to extract from them. And, you know, you fast forward five years later, Five Star Movement are barely appearing in the polls and the EU is very much strong and alive. Many parties come in with this agenda to try to renegotiate the terms of the EU. Very few of them are successful. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.